legalizefreedom.com. Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Jeffrey Mishlove, founder of Thinking Aloud and New Thinking Aloud, who joins us to discuss his broadcasting career and some of the greatest mysteries and wonders of life and the universe. Jeff's original Thinking Aloud TV series, which began back in the 1980s, was a great inspiration for my own career in alternative media, so I was delighted when he agreed to appear on Legalized Freedom. Issues discussed include changes in the media world from the 1970s to today, the evolution of humanity, the existence of evil, the true nature of reality, altered states of consciousness and the origin of consciousness itself, the crumbling materialist scientific paradigm and what might take its place, and the very future of our species. Hello and welcome, Jeff, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Now, Jeff, you've been uh, broadcasting in what I suppose has come to be known as alternative media. I don't know if you care for the term or not, but you've been doing, looking askance at all sorts of interesting topics you know, for decades now, and we're going to be talking a bit about your career and your approach to your work and uh, some of the topics you've investigated over the years and some of the guests that you've had. Before we dive into that, just for listeners who are not aware, just give them a potted bio um, of yourself and your work. I have a doctoral degree from the University of California at Berkeley in parapsychology, the scientific study of extrasensory perception, psychokinesis or mind over matter, and life after death. I earned that degree in 1980. Uh, to my knowledge, it's the only doctoral diploma that actually says parapsychology ever awarded uh, by an accredited university, certainly in the United States and possibly in the world. And I, I've been doing broadcasting in this field uh, for 50 years. I started in 1972. Yeah, it's an incredible track record. Now, you mentioned this doctoral diploma in parapsychology, and that's, for those of us interested in parapsychology, that would strike us as very unusual, particularly when you go back to 1980. Uh, now, there are quite a, a few research units based, some of them based at universities, some not investigating parapsychology. But again, for that, for that to be achieved by you in 1980 must have been so, so out of left field and so, so ahead of its time, really. 
Well, I, to be clear, there are hundreds of people who have done doctoral level research in parapsychology going back even to the 1930s at Duke University, for example. Uh, so my distinction in, in a way is trivial that my diploma says parapsychology on it rather than psychology or some other discipline. And again, just to remind listeners, when we're talking about parapsychology, we're talking about psychic phenomena such as telepathy, uh, you know, telekinesis, remote viewing, ESP, and such like. And it also touches upon the realms of um, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences. It's that general um, area. That's correct. Now, I also read that you uh, teach parapsychology to, uh, and this is very interesting to you, to ministers in training, I'm quoting here from your website, ministers in training with the Centers for Spiritual Living. Uh, no, this is religious organization, is that correct? Uh, yes, it used to be known as the United Church of Religious Science, and uh, they changed their name. There were two different branches of the Church of Religious Science, originally founded by Ernest Holmes uh, earlier in the 20th century. And the, there was one branch, and then they split apart. Then they came back together and uh, changed the name to Centers for Spiritual Living. Uh, they're lovely people. I'm not a member of that church, but I uh, have been teaching parapsychology to their ministers and training now for many years. Now, the reason I said this was particularly interesting to me is because in my own experience, I'm, I'm not re conventionally religious or a church goer, though I did attend church when I was a child, you know, encouraged by my parents. I think that's quite a common experience. But I found, particularly in the uh, Anglican Church uh, here in the UK, and there's an equivalent in Ireland where I'm from, I'm not quite sure what the equivalent would be in the US, but a very Protestant, mainline, conservative, kind of vanilla sort of brand of, uh, you know, mainstream Christianity. Many of the, the, the members of the clergy, it seems to me, you know, maybe on their off the record moments, it might be different, but as a whole organization, have very little to say about the experience of the non-material and the transcendent, these things which some people studying parapsychology make connections with, you know, with with religious and spiritual experience and these other uh, experiences that are in many ways uh, sound very similar, but, you know, being investigated by people like Dean Radin and what have you, they don't seem to have, it's almost like they're not offering any connection to the transcendent and they seem very actually nervous and apprehensive if you start talking about things like out-of-body experiences, near-death experience and experiences and what this might mean in the context of their scripture. Well, I think that's true to a large degree, but there are some important exceptions. The Anglican Church in particular has had a long-standing interest in spiritualism, which is a strong movement in the UK. Uh, there's been a very famous episode back in the 1960s when Bishop James Pike, who was the Episcopalian Bishop of California, the Episcopalians in the United States as the equivalent of the Anglican Church, and 
his son died. He was in England at the time, as a matter of fact. His son had been with him. And his Anglican colleagues, after his son died, urged him to have a session with a spiritualist medium named Ina Twig, uh, with whom they were friendly. In fact, they even set the whole situation up. Uh, Pike had this session and he felt that he was in contact with his deceased son uh, as a result of that. As I recall, an Anglican minister accompanied him to this session, and uh, not only did his son come through, but also the famous theologian, Paul Tillich, came through in this spiritualist session, and Bishop Pike was so impressed that uh, after a few months, he actually resigned as the Bishop of California in order that he could study spiritualism and also the origins of Christianity more carefully. And it was only uh, within the next year after his resignation that he unfortunately died in the desert in, in Israel. It was very famous episode. He got lost in the desert. People were searching for him. Ina Twig, once again, the British medium, was called on to see if she could locate him in the desert. And in fact, she came up with a very accurate description of his final moments uh, before his death in uh, in Israel. Uh, well, there's a few pointers actually in the story you've related there that lead me to do a bit more research in that area. But I was just recounting my, my general experience um, it's a bit like they say when you go to the Catholic Church now trying to find an exorcist that, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do. They seem to be fighting shy of anything that's, that smacks of the supernatural or the paranormal. Again, which to me are virtually interchangeable terms, which again overlap in a Venn diagram type fashion with a lot of, uh, uh, psychic phenomena. You know, there's so much common ground there. And we'll, we'll come to that later actually and, and where, um, all of this might be pointing in, in future. But what sort of upbringing did you have in terms of uh, becoming interested in, I guess, you know, non-material phenomena, just fourteen topics perhaps uh, in parapsychology, in the, in everything that's beyond th three dimensions and five senses? Clearly, this is something that you got drawn into over time. Well... Obviously, we live in a very materialistic era, and it's affected even the religions. I was raised Jewish, uh, and in a mainstream conservative Jewish synagogue in the Midwest of the United States, and it was a time when Jewish people uh, in the shadow of the Second World War were trying very hard to fit in and, and not appear to be different from anybody else. So uh, the supernatural was never discussed uh, at all. But uh, my big awakening, I suppose, occurred as a college student when I took psychedelic drugs for the first time. And uh, that sort of opened up a whole vista to me. And I realized that, you know, something's going on that uh, all of my previous religious and secular education was unable to account for. And it was at that time in the 1960s that I began 
uh, opening up to a wide range of other experiences. And in fact, when I was a, a senior in uh, college as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, I wrote a senior honors thesis on the psychology of religious mysticism. And my intention in beginning that thesis was that I begin to develop uh, an understanding of the psychopathologies associated with people who claim to see ghosts or have mystical experiences. But by the time I did my research and uh, really investigated things carefully, particularly the work of the great psychologist Abraham Maslow, who wrote a book called Toward a Psychology of Being, and uh, in which he pointed out that some of the most successful people in our culture have had what he called peak experiences. These peak experiences shaped their lives dramatically, and they were virtually indistinguishable from mystical experiences. I, at that point, developed a whole new attitude toward the transcendent. And it wasn't long after that that I began having a whole host of synchronistic and mystical experiences myself. Oh, well, that's very interesting to hear um, about your journey and, and how it, um, when we say changed, but how it expanded and opened out um, following uh, the psychedelic experiences that Maslow's peak experience I actually ended up reading about after I, I read Colin Wilson in the 1980s and his concepting of Faculty X, which is, again, is basically the peak experience. And I know you've had Colin Wilson on the show in the past, uh, the late Colin Wilson, sadly no longer with us. Uh, have you had Rick Strassman on your show? I have indeed. I've done a couple interviews with Rick. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you've done that. So I remember his book, which I spoke to him about LSD and the Soul of Prophecy, I believe, was talking about the similarities between some sort of uh, mystical experiences, you know, religious rapture type experiences and psychedelic experiences and wondering whether there could be a partial or direct overlap. So it's a very interesting um, area of exploration. And it's just interesting that you came away, as so many people do actually, with, with a changed outlook once you actually look at these things, because I'm sure you've had the experience in your life uh, of the, you know, the professional skeptic who has not and will not look at, at what it is that uh, you or, you know, some of your guests are, are proposing. Well, it, it's true. I've certainly uh, encountered uh, various skeptics. Uh, you know, a, a skeptic of the paranormal is not so different in a way from a, a person whose politics are different from your own, and they seem rigidly uh, stuck to their position no matter what evidence you might show them. I think it's a, a factor of uh, social psychology that people develop opinions and then they find the facts that fit their pre-existing opinions about things. Uh, nevertheless, I think that the dialogue, when it's possible to have a dialogue between paranormal researchers and, and their skeptical opponents who think there's absolutely nothing to it, very often good things come out of those dialogues, in, in particular improvements in the uh, research methodologies. Well, this is also a problem in science, isn't it? You know, developing a 
a theory and then following up, working on that which seems to support your theory or even prove it, which seems logical, but then also uh, just ignoring and setting aside things that would actually undermine your theory, which is, you know, it, that that's, is not rigorous. It's just normal human psychology. The, you know, it's amazing when you think about it that we are uh, mammals. We are uh, part of the ape family and uh, human civilization has progressed as far as it has traveling into outer space and uh, building cell phones and, and building the internet. Uh, we've accomplished so much given, uh, you know, where we started, but uh, obviously we're still subject to uh, uh, the biological instincts we were born with. And uh, those instincts are often at odds with the demands of rationality and civilization. Now, speaking about your broadcasting, the original thinking allowed um, that well, that sort of uh, morphed from a, an earlier show that you had in the mid eighties. But you mentioned starting out on that path in the early seventies. So, what what did you? How did you first get into uh, broadcasting in whatever form? Well, there's an interesting story there, Greg. Uh, I was a graduate student in criminology. If you had known me 50 years ago, uh, I was volunteering at San Quentin Prison, conducting group therapy sessions in the psychiatric unit with murderers and rapists. And that's when I had uh, my first major experience of the afterlife when a great uncle of mine died and appeared to me in a dream. It was an extremely powerful dream, so much so that I woke up from that dream crying tears of joy and singing a sacred song from the Jewish tradition. And I realized at that point that I wanted to shift from studying the negative forms of human deviance, psychopathology and crime, which you can study at almost any college or university, to studying the positive forms of human deviance, looking at creativity, intuition, psychic functioning and mysticism. Uh, and I learned that there were almost no opportunities to do that, even at a large university like Berkeley, where I was. So I agonized over this for many, many months. And one day I knew without a doubt that the answer was going to come to me that night in a dream. And in fact, I had that dream. I, I dreamt that I was visiting some friends of mine in Berkeley, knocked on the door of their apartment. Nobody answered. And in the dream, I found a key, let myself into the apartment, walked into the living room, and there on the middle of the living room floor was a magazine named I, E-Y-E. And as I was paging through it, in my dream, I woke up with this feeling of exhilaration, like I had the answer. However, I didn't know what it meant. So I acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes, ran across town five miles, came to this apartment, knocked on the door, and as I had dreamt, nobody was home. 
I happened to know that they kept the key hidden under the doormat. So I took the key, let myself into their apartment, walked into the living room, and there in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. It was called Focus. And it was a little dream distortion, I suppose, between I and focus. But that magazine literally brought focus to my life. It was the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and television in the San Francisco Bay Area, KQED. And as I was paging through the magazine, it dawned on me for the first time that I could pursue my interests by getting involved in the nonprofit section or segment of the media. And so I went and volunteered at the local Pacifica nonprofit radio station in Berkeley, where I was living. And they were happy to have me. They said, uh, here, sit at this desk. And when you hear the doorbell ring, press this button and let people in the front door. So I did that. I, even though I had my master's degree at the time, I was happy to do this. And within three weeks, I had learned how to produce a radio program. I, I produced my first program on you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic. Uh, because I had local friends in Berkeley who were uh, practitioners of various pagan traditions and uh, were psychic. And the program director liked it so much, he said, we have a regular slot for you every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. You can host this program called The Mind's Ear. And I found myself all of a sudden sitting across the table from world-class experts all passing through the San Francisco Bay Area on their book tours in all the areas that interested me the most. So it was with this knowledge that I had access to all of these uh, wonderful people that I then went back to the university and created my own individual interdisciplinary doctoral major taking advantage of some obscure rules set up at, by the graduate division that if you're already a graduate student in good standing and you want to create a doctoral dissertation in an area that no department would sponsor, but you can find a few professors in different departments who are willing to sponsor you, uh, you can create a program like that. So that's how I got started. Well, it must have been an amazing time, really, considering uh, it, was such, it was such a different media world back then. Certain things were uh, much better in, in some ways, it seems, and uh, some things today are much easier and cheaper than they were back then. But uh, go, I mean, go right back to when that first show kicked off. I mean, who can, who were some of the early people that you spoke with that, uh, that might be, if not household names, then certainly people interested in, in our topics would recognize. Well, it was a very exciting time. People were interested in Jungian psychology and synchronicities and the remote viewing research being done at SRI International was just getting off the ground. And Uri Geller, 
was coming onto the scene. And I actually sponsored a, a conference at the university on uh, the frontiers of consciousness research. I invited Andrea Puharic, the person who wrote the book about Uri and who brought Uri to the United States for research purposes. And um, he made the very first public announcement about the research with Uri Geller at that symposium. And then uh, we sponsored Uri to come. And I did radio programs with Uri back in the early 1970s. So uh, you can imagine it was a, a thrilling time. Absolutely. Fast forward to the first uh, media uh, content of yours that I uh, became aware of, and this this was um, online, you know, YouTube uploads of the uh, original Thinking Aloud uh, series, which I mentioned earlier. It was a, a transition from a, a, an earlier show that you had a, f- a few years before that, and you sort of basically changed the name. And the thing that s- struck me then, we go back to the late 90s, early 2000s now, when I first saw some of this content. So it struck me then, and it's even more striking today, is, you know, and also public service broadcasting was kind of an amazing phenomenon that we don't really have an equivalent of here in the UK, never really have. Uh, but The internet may have taken away any requirement for that. But the point was that the interviews were lengthy. They were in-depth. Uh, they didn't seem to be uh, scripted or controlled, you know, and you as a host, you're not never trying to shut your guests down. You're never trying to censor. This is how it comes across. It just seems so open and open minded just to see where the conversations would go, where the topic would take you. And it contrasts so sharply with so much media interviewing today. And obviously, lots of people are still doing long form interviews yourself included. In fact, the internet has opened up a whole cornucopia of that. But just in general, I think the original Thinking Aloud would, you know, worked really well as it's a TV show, something that any intelligent, curious person could sit down in front of in the evening and enjoy. And there were other shows like that at the time. And I just think that any roughly modern equivalent that would actually get onto television now is characterized by trivia and by superficial culture and there seems to be, I don't know, maybe you can give me your opinion here. It seems to be like almost contra- contrasting directions, some kind of bifurcation in people's consciousness of some people, many people are becoming much more interested in the topics that you're discussing, what it might mean for the future of the species and other people becoming ever more immersed in materialism in both senses of the word, you know, in, in terms of a cosmology and in terms of a lifestyle. Well, um, it's it's true there is this bifurcation and and, and even more it's it's complex there's a, a whole new genre of documentaries on the paranormal uh, at the same time you know mainstream television is primarily an entertainment media and i've always considered the work that i do to be more educational than entertaining uh, i don't try to tell jokes i don't try to uh, I don't know what, you know, soft pedal, uh, difficult topics, but uh, obviously a lot of other media doesn't, and they probably have much bigger audiences for that. So uh, I wish them well. I I can tell you an interesting story about the thinking aloud 
television series that ran from 1987 to 2002. Um, that was my first foray into television and uh, I had already uh, stopped doing radio for a while and I had a good friend who was a psychic, Carol Ann Dreyer. She was sort of a psychic to the stars in Hollywood and uh, we were close and she introduced me to many of her clients who were big names, people like Tina Turner, for example. And one day, she had a, a program on public access cable TV in uh, Southern California, and she invited me down. She interviewed me on her channel, showed me how, how it worked, and then she said to me, Jeffrey, you go up and you do this in your city in Northern California, and I promise you it will be more successful beyond your wildest dreams. So that's how we started out on public access cable in Marin County, California. We did that for, I think, 10 episodes and took uh, one of our tapes to the local PBS station, a small one, in San Mateo, California, associated with the College of San Mateo. And the program director liked it. He said, I'll give you a primetime slot for these. And we did that for a year and after that, he said, I'm going to sponsor your program for satellite upload. And we got on the satellite. And before I knew it, we were being carried by 100 stations all across the United States and Canada, mostly the small ones. But still, we were at that point reaching many, many millions of people. And uh, I've had guidance like that. If it didn't come from dreams, it came from psychic friends all the way through my career. So in terms of interviews, if you look at the original Thinking Aloud uh, series, uh, just all of the different topics, but just the, the you know, the, the list, you know, the, the roll call of guests that you spoke with, and then that's continued now in, uh, in the current era with, with new Thinking Aloud. Is it with this, that sheer volume of work under your belt documenting all this? Is it like, is it impossible really to choose, you know, a handful of shows that you think are the most outstanding, your favorite guest? Is that not really a fair thing to do? Were, were there people perhaps that, um, that you would like to have spoken with that you didn't have the opportunity to? I mean, I've had, I've been doing this for just over 10 years in the current format. And um, I've had four or five um, authors and researchers actually die after we had, uh, you know, tentatively agreed an interview, including Colin Wilson, unfortunately. So there's always that sort of tinge of regret, you know, when these when these people are are gone, they're gone. It's it's true. I feel very fortunate. I did get to interview Colin Wilson, and uh, we have. On the original Thinking Aloud website, which uh, is, is still there, the original programs are still available. Uh, I think there are over 50 people who I've interviewed uh, from that era who are now deceased. And uh, some, some truly great people, uh, for example, 
Rollo May, an existential psychologist, he was an enemy of the paranormal, but nevertheless a very, very profound thinker who had to battle his own depression and came up with uh, an understanding and it was a pioneer in the field of what is known as existential psychotherapy based on his own encounters with depression. So uh, that would be an example of, uh, for me of one of the highlights of the people I've interviewed. And, uh, another one, a person I greatly admire who had a big influence on me and uh, is still alive. People can still uh, participate in workshops and seminars with her is Jean Houston. Uh, who has written 20 or 30 books, was a pioneer in psychedelic research back in the 1960s and is still going strong. Well, I mentioned the uh, what the how the media landscape has changed, not just from when you started out in radio, but even in the 1980s, you know, how uh, not quite unrecognizable, but I mean, the internet really was a major game changer and even early advocates of it and early adopters of it for publishing media, many didn't quite see just the exponential change and, you know, the, the, the speed, um, the, the gathering speed of change that the internet would bring to so many facets of our life, but those of us in the media in particular, because the big trade-off seems to be the uh, talking about your long-form shows, uh, when people really spend time with a subject or a guest versus the bite-size material that we get so much today but i've been told before oh look you need to do let your your videos need to be less than 15 minutes you know and even then you won't get people um staying for that long but just don't even think about doing an hour plus you know you're wasting your time well i don't find that i am i'm doing what i enjoy i'm doing what i want to hear and that's you know i think as far as creativity goes you know if anyone else in the world likes what you like then you have potentially an audience the the upside of this is the potential reach. Now, there probably aren't billions of people listening to new thinking aloud, but the point is that it's possible, you know, that you do that, that is reachable by those sorts of numbers of people. So there there is a bit of a there's a trade-off, isn't there, really, as as media has developed over the decades. And, you know, for a serious program dealing with the paranormal, I think we're doing pretty well. We have uh, at this point over 114,000 subscribers to our channel, which uh, for this field, consciousness research and and the paranormal, that's a big number. And and these are serious listeners. And and so we've reached millions of people actually with, with very serious content. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.